0: Trevor, how are you doing tonight?
1: I am doing well. How are you doing?
0: Doing good. Doing good. Thank you so much for taking the time to hop on with me. I, I really appreciate it. Um, before we hop into some of the questions I have, do you mind giving kind of a, a brief bio, bio and some of the big things you're interested in?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is Trevor Klee. Um, I'm a Boston, Massachusetts. Uh have two very disparate job titles right now. So um, I currently both run a small education business doing test prep, uh, sell books. I have an app, tutor people, have YouTube videos. Uh, So that's one thing that I do. And then uh, I'm simultaneously trying to get a uh, pharmaceutical startup off the ground. looking to do a therapeutic for autoimmune and neurodegenerative diseases. So it's uh, maybe maybe one of the stranger side hustles that people tend to have. Hopefully it's soon a full-time hustle. That's Uh, awesome. Yeah, I'm interested in stuff relating to both of those.
0: Gotcha. Do you, you know, they sound disparate, but do you see those two as connected in any way? Or is it something, um, you know, you, you know, test prep has been paying the bills and you want to, you know, this is what you've been thinking about for a while is pharma.
1: Yeah. So they're not particularly connected. I would say like the people in the test prep world who I talk to, um, literally none of them have any interest in this uh, <laughs> and, and vice, vice versa for, for pharma. Um, so there's little to no connection Um The closest connection I actually can make is I taught philosophy for like a year and a half um, to like Chinese college students as sort of like a strange job that I had. Um, And that sort of got me down the process of like more researching on my own after college. And I think that was the closer to connection to this pharma stuff. But again, it's a very weak connection. I can't make a very strong claim as to how exactly I became interested in these two things.
0: That's awesome, that's awesome. And do you have a bio background at all? Or are you just like something, you know, you, you've done a lot of reading, you found some interesting areas and, and perhaps found a $20 bill on the sidewalk that people have missed.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I, um, in college I did research into earth sciences, I, I did, research into, uh, climate change and hurricanes specifically. Um, and then, yeah, no, that was, that was pretty much it for the scientific background. Um, uh, I took one molecular biology class in college and everything else since then has been self-taught. Uh, I will say, um, my brother has his own pharma startup, which is actually much further along than mine. They're uh, just submitted, uh, an application for drug approval to the FDA actually, which is like, oh, awesome. you know, many years and millions of dollars down the line. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big deal. It's very exciting. Um, so I've, you know, spent a long time talking with him and his business partner about these sorts of things. So it wasn't entirely foreign to me. Um, I, I saw him go through it, but of course it's really different when to go through it yourself.
0: No doubt. No doubt. That's really cool. Um, First question, test prep. Um, you know, I'm curious, and and we can we can absolutely cut this if if you want to. Um, but for my own curiosity, you know, I've always envisioned a lot of these standardized tests as kind of like fairly pure test of cognitive ability. Um, can you get better at them if you get more familiar with them?
1: Oh, uh completely. Yeah. The the idea that you can't is is a lie spread by the test prep companies because they want to be pure tests of cognitive ability. I mean. It's it's like chess, you know. Uh where you start from and how fast you learn has something to do with cognitive ability. But like, you know, a total idiot who spent you know five years studying chess intensively is going to beat a genius who's never played chess before. I mean, you know, there's a lot of crystallized knowledge that goes into it. Gotcha. Um, and that's you know, same thing with these tests. Smart people will have an advantage coming into it and they'll have an advantage if they study, but there's so much crystallized knowledge that goes into it.
0: Gotcha. That's super interesting. And are, are some tests, you know, more prone to that than others? Like are some like, is there any anything like that you found?
1: Um, so the biggest distinction between tests, which is generally a distinction between subjects that people don't pay enough attention to is skills versus content. Okay. Um, So, you know, two of the tests I teach are like the MCAT and the LSAT. Yeah. Uh, LSAT to go to law school, MCAT to go to medical school. Um, The LSAT is purely skill-based. Like, you know, you can go into it and score presumably even a perfect score, never having taken it before, if you think about it the right way. Gotcha. Meanwhile, the MCAT is heavily, heavily content-based. Like, you know, I usually tell people they're gonna study for around 300 hours before they ever are ready to take a practice test. Oh, wow. Uh, it's a ton of content, it's, it's, it's a huge amount. Um, and so it is, that's the single biggest difference and the way you need to approach it um, really changes pretty dramatically. Uh, which is why, you know, there's a lot of people who are smart at math but dumb at history or vice versa. You know, it's a question of skills versus content.
0: Gotcha. That's super interesting. That's super interesting. And and how has it been uh developing the tutoring business over time? Has it uh has it been something where you you thought this would be a fun thing to do and got into it, or is it just like a kind of emergent thing where you know maybe you helped one person and then it kind of uh took over because you're pretty good at it?
1: Uh, uh it became a thing like I was uh unemployed after college, and um I think pretty quickly realized that I'm probably not employable like i like as someone who hasn't had a traditional who had like very few traditional jobs in my life and you know sort of stopped having traditional jobs six months after college uh I got fired from a lot of jobs like you know, either fired or not asked back. So I think like the whole, I needed something that would pay my rent. And this was something that I enjoyed and was good at. Uh, But yeah, no, from the very beginning, it was like, wow, I really need to pay rent.
0: Right. It's like a hard need. That's super interesting. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Uh, Why do big species tend to live longer than smaller species? And why doesn't this carry over to like dog breeds?
1: Oh, I don't understand how that's a shift in yours at all. That goes directly, uh, direct segue. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, so this was the subject of the blog post, Eric. Um, so the, the start of the blog post was sort of this, I always like starting things with sort of like simple observations. Uh, and that's like, I think in general, the way I view a lot of bio is there's so much of it we don't know. And I think it's most interesting to start with a weird observation, and be like, "Huh, that's neat," and then you explore and you say, "Why?" So, you know, this sort of weird observation I started with is, you know, between species, bigger species live longer than smaller species. You know, elephants live longer than mice. You know, whales will live longer than dolphins. Um, you know, that's that's pretty much universal. Um, There are rare exceptions, right? Like humans live exceptionally long. Naked mole rats live exceptionally long. Bats live exceptionally long, you know, compared to their size. But generally speaking, that's the pattern. And now within a species, that's not true. Um, Bigger species of horse, like given a single horse, a bigger variety is going to live less long than a smaller variety. You know, a Chihuahua is going to live longer than a St. Bernard. Uh, you know, Great Danes are sort of famously, like, their heartbreak dogs, they, they live till they're like seven years old. So you've got this, like, question of, like, why, you know, does an elephant live longer than a mouse, but a St. Bernard live shorter than a Chihuahua? So that was sort of my, like, initial question. Um, and I found a lot of really unsatisfactory answers to it. Like, uh, there's one, like, weirdly common answer that's, like, number of heartbeats. Like okay. we all have a certain number it's like Buzz
0: parts. Aldrin, like you've only got a certain amount and once yeah. you turn them all out, you're done.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I remember there was like a Dilbert comic at some point where they like I think Dilbert was arguing that like he only gets a million heartbeats, so he shouldn't exercise because <laughs> right, he would, exactly got more of them. Yeah. Um so um so yeah, so I was I was really unsatisfied with the answers I found. Um, I thought it was easier to explain why in a St. Bernard would live less long than a Chihuahua, which is just mainly mechanical stress on heart. Right. Lungs. Um, there's more body surfaces, more chance to get infections. You know, there's more chance for cancer when you have more cells. So that made sense. The question was then why do elephants live longer than mice? Um, and so you can answer it from two perspectives. One, you can answer it from an evolutionary perspective. You can say, why do elephants live longer than mice? It's because the evolutionary strategy of the mouse is have lots of kids very quickly, sort of like you know spend right. spend all of your evolutionary energy in like two years, just have like the really rapid generation. And you know elephants are case selected, as they call it. You know, let's have one kid every once in a while and put a ton of energy into that kid. Right. Um, but that doesn't really explain the how, there's not really a mechanical answer. So mechanically it came down, and this is where it gets a little fuzzier, but mechanically, I believe it comes down to the immune system. Um, and so, and that's, you know, the immune system, as you can probably tell is something that I find super interesting. I've come back to it in various forms, like and again. mainly, uh, sorry about that. My dog is playing with a bone. Um, the immune system, uh, the way I described it in an earlier blog post was like, it, it's coming in at like series three or like season three million of a, um, of a show, uh, like season three million of a show that was like already, um, complicated to begin with. Cause there's just been evolution, 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 evolution. And everything's, you know, so, so intense and evolving so quickly. So the immune system is, you know, uh, this super complicated, intricate defense system. Now, what does that have to do with elephants and mice? Well, if you think of a mouse, uh, a mouse's immune system is not designed to make the mouse live long. It's pretty much just like anything that could throw it off course for that year or two, which is pretty much just going to be infections. It doesn't care about cancer because it's probably not gonna live long enough to get cancer, right. right? It's really just like, cannot get infected for that year or two. Like, and then, so whatever happens, like anything that remotely looks like an infection, it's gonna blast it away. Um, as a result, it's gonna cause a lot of collateral damage, right? Like imagine having, you know, imagine if you're police force, not, not to get political, Imagine if your police force had this job that was like, you know, shoot anything that looks suspicious. Yeah. You would probably kill all the criminals and you'd also kill a lot of other people. Right. Um, which again, not going to make any sort of political commentary about that. Now, um, meanwhile, if you think of an elephant, an elephant's immune system has a job, first of all, of like, it can't be that aggressive. Right, it can't shoot anything that looks remotely threatening because you're going to kill a lot of things, and it also has the added problem of an elephant lives long enough to get cancer, and like cancer is much more complicated um, and much harder to deal with, and your immune system has to be a lot more clever to to deal with it because it is essentially your own body cells. Right. Um, so you know, essentially, in bigger species, the immune system through uh you know preference of like sort of like the adaptive immune system of neutrophils of parts of the immune system that are more selective uh that tends to be preferred in bigger species and in species that live longer and in species that live less long you tend to have more of like for example nk cells which are sort of infamously aggressive they're called natural killer cells cuz they will like kill anything and that's, that's what they do. And we have some amount in our body, but if you look at like a mouse, proportionally they have way more. So, you know, they're, they have so many NK cells that are on the lookout for literally anything that it doesn't know for a fact is benign, the NK cells will kill it. Um, which is really interesting. If you take a look at like bats, bats lack NK cells. So bats oh, live wow. like 20 years. You know, if you think of a bat as a flying mouse, mouse lives one or two years, a bat lives 20 years. Bats totally lack NK cells. So it's, it's a really interesting thing. And then you can start thinking about other ways. Okay. What does this mean for human longevity? And you know, there's stuff, there's stuff relating to the immune system that we could go into for human longevity, but that's, that's another step. Anyways, long story short.
0: That's super interesting. Yeah. We we talked to, uh, before everything went down with uh, Aubrey de Grey, we talked to him about uh, opossums and uh, we got a lot of opossums in North Carolina. There's an island in North Carolina off the coast where the opossums live, you know, twice as long. They live like three years instead of one year, one and a half years on average. And that's because they have no natural predators. So it's like, wh- what kind of switch do they have, right? Where you can um, kind of make that multiplier it has something to do with the immune system. It's quite interesting, super interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I... I don't know much of Aubrey de Grey's work specifically. Uh, I know that crew tends to be really big on rapamycin, which is, you know, an immunosuppressant, uh, like caloric restriction, you know, has a lot of effects, but immunosuppression is, is one effect of caloric restriction. Uh, so there's, there's really interesting stuff going on there, um, you know, in terms of what the relation is and ultimately, you know, how can we, you know, quote unquote, hack it to, to extend our own longevity.
0: No doubt, no doubt. Are, are there any, um, you mentioned bat immune systems. Is there anything unique about bat u- u- immune system that lends them to uh, create, you know, incubation of certain, you know, you know, viruses or anything like that, that are particularly pernicious to humans?
1: Excellent, excellent question. Um, uh, you know, the quality of questions just, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, that happens to be another thing that I have a long-winded, Uh, explanation about. Um, So bats are weird. So bats, we keep getting viruses from bats and we get viruses from bats way more often than you would expect, right? Like, yes, people sometimes eat bats. Yes, they sort of live in our like cities, but we get viruses from bats way more than we get viruses from, you know, rats, which are in much closer context or cats or pigs. Um, like a lot of things that we should be getting viruses more from, um, you know, coronavirus is just one example. There's, um, you know, a couple different viruses, which, you know, bats are natural reservoirs for. So it's, it's weird, right? Like why bats? Um, and so one answer is bats have similar immune systems to us or similar enough. Um, you know, it's the similarity of the immune system depends on a lot of different things, Um But, you know, uh, but pigs do have closer immune systems to us than bats. Fish have further immune systems. So it's still, it's not a great answer. So it starts getting to the point of what's different about bats. And so the short answer is what's different about bats is bats are dirty, dirty creatures. They are infected with viruses. Uh, They're not just reservoirs for human viruses, they're reservoirs for all sorts of viruses. Um, And it's weird because you'd expect them to all be uh dead um (laughs) like why are they all dead uh and so the the answer seems to be that the reason why bats aren't all dead uh is bats naturally you know they're a flying mammal um which is a hard thing to do it's hard to fly it's really energy intensive um and that means that bats get their core temperature raised and so what that means for bats is first of all, they're always kind of running a fever. So that's that's gonna help someone. Now, the other thing that's going on with bats that's different than you know, other other mammals uh, is, as I mentioned before, um, bats have a weird immune system that probably has to relate to the fact that they're always running a fever. And what happens when you're always running a fever is you're always sort of damaging cells Got and you're it. getting you're getting weird. Now, you have to understand that, like, there's only so many building blocks of things in your body, and your body has recognizes an enormous number of cells. But if it sees malformed cells or malformed DNA or malformed RNA, uh, it's usually going to kill it. Like, that's something that happens, you know, uh, a lot in, you know, you get, like, necrosis from, like, a sunburn or something like that you know, your body, your DNA gets damaged and your body's like, well, we got to kill this. I don't know what it is, it might be cancer, you know, kill it, get rid of it. Uh, bats can't afford to do that because then they would just die. So their immune system has essentially adapted to be sort of on a constant state of low alert where, you know, their immune system is active enough that they don't die from these infections but it's not so active that it kills all the cells that are being damaged from their constant low-grade fever.
0: Gotcha. Um,
1: And what that means for bats is that bats, you know, are constantly a little sick. Gotcha. Bats constantly have the sniffles, um, which works for them and doesn't work for us because, you know, we come in contact with them and it's just they're, you know, we're not like them. They they have, you know, coronaviruses, which to them are the sniffles, and to us, you know, we get them and we end up dying. But, got it.
0: So it's uh, it, 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 is it something where like because you've got this constant kind of source of damage? There's the, is there more mutation of like coronavirus or something like that? So there's more novelty that can come from bats.
1: Um, I mean, that, so that may be an ignorant question,
0: so, but I don't know.
1: Um, so I mean, I don't think coronaviruses need any like uh, encouragement to mutate, like you know, they're going to mutate regardless. Viruses mutate constantly. Um, If I recall correctly, the coronavirus especially, I think mutates a lot. I think it has poor error checking. Um, But the more important thing about bats is that they're very, very social. They live in massive groups. Um, So it is like a natural testing pool. So anytime a virus has the chance to mutate, right? Like if you think about, I sort of think about it as like capitalism. Right. Like, you know, every virus is like selling something. Right. And yeah. whoever manages to come up with a slightly better advertisement or maybe a slightly better product. Right. Like it can spread across a million bats instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, there's, there's high evolutionary pressure in terms of there's lots of chances Got it. to like, you know, hit it big. That's why, you know, to get to the commerce example, why you see a lot more experimentation and sort of like novel business ideas in New York City versus, you know, Wichita,
0: makes sense. Super interesting. That's, that's super interesting. Um, sticking on the immune system, you know, people talk a lot about inflammation, but you know, you know what is inflammation and why why does it matter for the immune system?
1: Uh, so this is a great question. Um, this is one that I got in an argument with uh, people on Reddit about. Um, nice. So I, I started off like. No, inflammation is something I think about a lot, Um, mainly because I don't think there's, I I really dislike um, the way it's usually thought about. Um, Like a lot of stuff about, oh, we need to reduce inflammation. Um, That's like a very classic thing you'll see in medicine. You'll see, like, you know, um, people will say, oh, Advil is good because it reduces inflammation, which is actually an interesting thing. In the US, people will say, doctors will say, if you're sick, take Advil, reduce inflammation. Yeah. In continental Europe, if you're sick, they'll, they'll say, well, actually inflammation is a good thing. Don't reduce inflammation. Don't take Advil. So that was actually in the beginning of COVID, There's a big argument of like, do you give COVID patients Advil? Where the Americans were like, of course they have a fever. And the Europeans were like, no, don't do it. They have a fever. <laughs> um, so, you know, this question of inflammation, I think is a really interesting one. And part of the problem is, you know, we only have so many pathways in our body, right? And inflammation right. is this really common pathway of if you get an infection, or if you get a pimple, or if you sprain your ankle, or you know whatever, you end up with this like swollen, red, hot to the touch. Right? Yeah. So it's a super common pathway for a lot of things. It's sort of like an initial alarm. Um. So you know, in terms of what's the point of um, inflammation in the immune system, it's its tough. The answer has to be it's important and it's vital and it's necessary. On the other hand, um, if you look at, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, some of the like leading biologics, like um, the, ah, just forgot the name, the one that's, it's TNF-alpha, it's like the top selling biologic, I'm forgetting the name right now. Um, but like, you know, things that people take for arthritis or Crohn's or whatever can almost completely disable inflammation. And there doesn't seem to be the crazy negative effects that you would expect. Interesting. So there's something going on there. And that's actually, I mean, it's a continual source of, do you know what a biologic is?
0: Uh, conceptually, but not well enough. Can you explain it to me?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So biologic. Um, so basically, you know, there's uh, two main drug categories that you can have. One is a drug that's like you take from the outside world. And another is a drug that is designed to mimic something in the body and very broad categories. And someone's going to argue with me about that. Um, so biologic is meant to, uh, mimic something in the body. And like the most common and the best-selling ones are monoclonal antibodies, you know, antibodies kill things. So we can make your body kill basically anything else in your body. So like stuff, you know, autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, we can have your body kill the things that would attack your joints. Um, the other, you know, big selling category of course, is insulin, which is a whole nother thing. But again, like we're trying to mimic insulin, which is something your body naturally produces or least at least supposed to. Um, so, you know, a lot of these biologics do reduce inflammation incredibly well. And you do see some rise in cancer and some rise in infection. Uh, So a healthy person definitely should not take these, but it's still remarkable. And maybe just as a result of like the super hygienic environments we live in, that like your Nana can take her, you know, weekly injection of Humira, that's what it's called. Yeah. Humira for rheumatoid arthritis. um, And she doesn't drop dead of pneumonia. It, it, it's it's an interesting question for me and one that I yeah. think is um, not as well explored as, as I would want or expect
0: yeah well that's super interesting well it's like a uh, going off of that uh, there's this great debate in sports medicine whether or not you should ice you know or provide heat like to uh, you know you, you've sprained your ankle like it's a great yeah. question right
1: Yeah I, I've gone down that one myself i I do jujitsu pretty. Pretty regularly and i'm constantly injured um i'm in fact i currently have a case of cauliflower ear from jujitsu oh, no. so questions of icing and resting and compression and elevation is one that i think about a lot and honestly i do nothing for my injuries so i'm probably not the right person to ask But I do think <laughs> about doing stuff for my injuries
0: That's super cool um you know building a sm- small biotech what what have been the biggest challenges it, and 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 how is the fda you know how is fda you know how do you see it as a small biotech is it just completely horrifying i'm assuming
1: yeah yeah so it the thing about being small biotech is first of all like you know um i i've had a lot of you know i've had various businesses some more successful than others of like service business versus software business versus like, you know, sort of like a product business or info product business. Um, And like the thing about biotech is you can't, um, you can be small for only so long, right? So like when we talk about small biotech, uh, like at the end of the day, you, the smallest you're gonna be is, you know, a couple hundred people and like 30 million or like 90 million uh dollars in funding. Yeah, at least a hundred million in funding. Like there's only so small you can be. Um, so very you know, capital intensive. About, yeah. Oh geez. Um, very capital intensive, very people intensive. Um, you know, it's so small biotech is, you know, uh we always got to be aware of of what we're talking about. Um, now, from the perspective of someone who of a company though that's not Pfizer, that's not Regeneron, It's not, you know, Merck, Um, you know, basically what is the FDA like from the perspective of people who don't know people at the FDA, which that, that's sort of, you know, when you submit to the FDA, does the person in chart reading, like your submission be like, oh, Hey, it's those guys. Trevor. Yeah. Oh, Hey, what's up. Yeah. Um, And that's, that's sort of with any regulator, that's a big advantage. Um, the FDA, I think, you know, and granted, you know, I haven't dealt with that many regulators, but the FDA, from my perspective is uniquely scary to deal with. If you don't know people there, or, you know, at least like, you know, if you don't have name recognition and I think it's, there's, there's very little oversight of the FDA. Like each so the FDA is divided up into divisions, yeah. Um, and the FDA has this like very anti—they're um, biased against approving things, and I mean that in the most literal sense of how they're organized. They have steps of organization, and you have to make it past each step. So at any point, the people can say like you can submit it to the division, and the division can say no. They say yes, it goes one level up, and those people can say no, or they can say yes, and then it goes one level up, and then they have to say yes. So you basically have to get three yeses to, to go, um, and only you know the noes can also generally sink you. Um, so that's it's a problem because there's like sort of like unique tiny fiefdoms, and like you can really end up getting screwed. Um, So, so there's a story recently of this biotech called Axome and they, they're doing for something for major depressive disorder, combination therapy, um, bupropion, dextromethorphan, which it's not a brilliant combination. It's like an antidepressant and another thing that looks like a rapid antidepressant, but it seemed to have an effect in major depressive disorder. Um, And they had sort of this terrible experience, um, which, you know, I haven't checked recently. I don't even know if it's resolved yet. Um, They were all set to launch. They hired all their people. They're, you know, ready to like advertise. Good to go. And And the FDA sends this letter on July 20th. And the letter basically just says, wait, (laughs) it doesn't say anything else. Just says, wait, we'll let you know. Oh, brutal. Yeah. Yeah, which is like, it's brutal, right? Like, you know, um, so Axome, you know, they don't know what to do. They have to issue their publicly traded company. They have to issue a press release saying the FDA told us to wait. We have no idea what they want us to wait for. Stock craters. Yeah, literally halves in a day. Yikes. And then three weeks later, the FDA sends them another letter and all that letter says, or actually they didn't even send them a letter. They told them this in a phone call. They said... um, we don't need any additional information from them. They didn't say stop waiting. They still want them to wait. They just said, you know, we don't need any additional information. which you can read as two ways. One is like them saying like, okay, at least we don't have to like do run another trial or something like that. Or you can think of it as like, oh, I'm so screwed. The FDA doesn't even care. Uh, They don't even need any more information. They're just, they're ready to screw me. Uh, So it's, it's, you know, and that sort of thing happens. Uh, I don't even know if that's been resolved yet. Um, But, you know, that's just one case of, uh, it's just, you know, one or two guys at the FDA, and they can just put a total halt to things. And they don't have to provide a reason. They don't have to tell you why or why you're waiting or anything. And they can just do it indefinitely. You can't stop them. Uh, So it's, it's really tough. And like, you're not, I think people misunderstand like what it's like, like, you can't sell anything. You can't do anything, right? Like everything flows through them. Yeah. Um, And like, you know, the FDA declares jurisdiction over pretty much everything. What's on your website is the jurisdiction of the FDA. Yikes. Your marketing materials is the jurisdiction of the FDA. What goes on your factory is the jurisdiction of the FDA. Every single part of your company is their jurisdiction. And any single part of it, they can tell you to change or that they don't like it or, you know, they can just say like, you know, they can sort of go for the nuclear option. They can say, you're done, right? Like you can be yeah. 10 years in, $100 million in, and the FDA can say, no, you're done. Brutal. Like it's, it's, it's a tough business. Um, now, why is this the business I'm going into? Good question.
0: <laughs> do, do you think it could have a, an outsized impact, I guess?
1: I, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, you know, I was, I was being a little flippant, um, you know, in terms of things I like, things I enjoy, um, I really enjoy talking about this stuff as you can probably tell, uh, and, you know, as some kind of utilitarian, uh, in terms of sort of like the biggest impact on, on lives, on happiness, um, yeah, that's, it's, it's yeah. a big, uh, know, yeah, that's, that's a big reason why I'm doing it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and it, it is, it feels brutally underserved because of the regulatory hurdles, right? You know, people, it's, it's much, you know, a software business, enterprise SaaS costs like a hundred grand and like, you know, to get up and running and, and you could be selling after that. And that's a big multiplier versus a hundred million. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's so different, but like, you know, in terms of, then you know, you think about the, in terms of the effects on humans' lives, you know, if, if I made another like CRM like, right. you know, like I don't know. I mean it might be nice, but like it's hard to be like, oh my God, like you know, another CRM really You're you definitely
0: know, moving to humanity forward. Yeah, 100%. yeah. Yeah.
1: You ever watch Silicon Valley, you know, making the world a better place? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Super interesting. Um do you have any advice for anyone, you know, working on a small biotech, you know, you've been on this journey. I, I mean, how long have you been on the journey and, and is there any big advice that, you know, perhaps is not obvious that comes to mind?
1: Oh, there's so much advice uh, in terms of how long I've been on the journey. Um, so formally incorporate incorporated in uh, early, early this year. So it hasn't been that long. Um, I've been thinking about it for longer. And then, you know um but yeah, in terms of advice, uh, so I want to go for like very non-obvious advice. Um, yeah. In terms of like, um, so in terms of my most non-obvious advice for someone who'd be interested in this, um, it's I think animal studies don't mean anything. Would be would be my. Biggest oh, interesting! Advice. Interesting. Um, I think the most common trap that people get caught in is they come up with these animal models um, and they like do all these things to these animals um, and then they like test out their drug on the animals and then it works on the animals and then they're like all right and then they're surprised that no one takes them seriously because generally people speaking people don't unless you've done something really surprising Um, and so my general advice is just if you can just skip the animals uh, I I sort of, I wouldn't say I got lucky. I looked for this on purpose. I found evidence in humans before I, I picked my drug combination. Gotcha. Um, I think there, you can make a really clever in vitro model if you have like really good reasoning as to why. But I think like, yeah, that's sort of my biggest example. Like I'll, I'll give you sort of the perfect example of this was, um, you know, uh, for, for the drug that I'm using right now, which is, or sort of exploring right now. So cyclosporine is like the main ingredient, um, cyclosporine is immunosuppressant with neuroprotective properties. Um, so it's, it's an interesting drug. Um, and probably like a decade ago, maybe like two decades ago, uh, people wasted like years and millions on it as a concussion drug. Oh, really? The did that is because they had animal models and the animal model was essentially what it came down to it is you give a pig cyclosporin, and then you hit it really hard in the head. <laughs> and then you're like, what happens to the pig? You know, how's he do? Yeah um like first of all these poor pigs like jesus christ pigs.
0: yeah oh god
1: you know it's just like it's an entire lab of people just kind <laughs> of that's terrible <laughs> jesus christ. yeah yeah they're like you know it's an entire lab full of people just hammering heads in the head yikes um, which is yeah um but like the other problem is you know they were so proud of this model that like um I'm sure they had this really complicated setup that they didn't stop to think like what relation does that have with humans? Yeah. The answer is it really doesn't because the way humans get concussions is not you can't tell people to take a pill before you get a concussion because a concussion right. is not something you expect.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so you know the way humans get concussions is we get a concussion and then like three hours later you know someone's like oh I think you have a concussion you should go to the doctor. Yeah. But, And so that's what happens. Or you get in a car accident and the ambulance rushes you to the hospital and you have a concussion and also like broken ribs and a bunch of other things wrong. Yeah. Um, And so humans just don't get concussions like that. And the trial failed because you can't administer the drug like that. Uh, So giving it
0: to the um, NFL running backs. Yeah.
1: I mean, (laughs) wise. yeah. I mean, that actually, you know, there's a guy now in, in Boston who's trying to like, who who's really trying to do a concussion pill, who's trying actually to do this whole thing of like, what if we made these NFL players like take a pill every single time they got in the field, which I think is kind of nuts. I don't think you can do that because uh the standard for giving drugs to healthy people is like super high. And so if you have any side effects, they won't let you do that. Um but yeah if I have any advice to small biotechs, especially like you know the majority of them aren't going to be like me. I'm It's very, very rare. Like my my brother and I are like on a short list of people who've done this completely outside of any like cocoon of academia or industry. Um, So most of these people are gonna be in academia. I'd say uh, ditch the animal models, either convince me with a really clever in vitro model or like, somehow get inhuman data, which I know is a difficult prospect, but, like, figured out.
0: That's super smart. Well, and I think that's why it's, it sounds like what you're saying is people underrate how different animals are from humans, perhaps.
1: Yeah. And uh, think about these things. Like, you come up with a really clever model, and you fall in love with it, and you, like, you get more interested in solving the map than the territory. Gotcha. So, like, um, there's this model of heart attacks, which essentially involves tying sutures around the aortic valve of a heart. And people do this with mice. And, and I actually researched a bunch of these when I was interested in the topic. Um, and like, there's paper after paper of how you suture the aortic valve of a mouse, which is really complicated. It's really yes. hard. It sounds it's like a terrible. Tiny mouse and you have to like, perform some very complex surgeries. Yes. and like, The problem is you get so far down that rabbit hole, you don't think like, you know, at the end of the day, this has nothing to do with a heart attack, Like, At no point in a heart attack does someone like, you know, you don't get your valve sutured. Um, So, uh, you know, I, I think people just fall in love with their very clever maps and they forget about the territory or they think the map is a lot easier to deal with than the territory. So then they only deal with the map.
0: Uh, that's that's really well put i i
1: I do wonder do you think you and your brother being kind
0: of outside academia which is where all life sciences happens except for you know you two i mean literally it's probably you two right um like that's the list uh do you think that gives you just a better better incentive model you know to to find things that are true because you're not trying to optimize on publications you're trying to optimize on like solving some kind of problem
1: um i would say i think you know, and I, and I have to give credit to him and his business partner, Josh, uh, because, you know, they were doing this, you know, like, you know, back in 2013 and I'm just starting to do it now. Um, I think the, it really is a difference between what we optimize for. Okay. I think we're very concerned about like, how do you get this drug into patients? Like, let's get a drug that works on patients and get it into patients. And I think that's something that y- when I put it that way, to me, it seems so obvious. And then like these academic people will spend years messing around in their research projects. And like, they won't even have a plan to get into patients. They'll be like 15 years into a research project where they're like, you know, the top line of their website is like, oh, curing Alzheimer's or whatever. And they've spent like 15 years, like messing around with like stupid research projects. (laughs) do you guys care about getting this in humans? Like, what's going on? Um, So yeah, I think it's really a difference in like, what are you going for? Like, are you just aiming to like fund your science projects in perpetuity or do you actually want to cure people?
0: Right, and and, and that's almost like a weird thing to say, right? But it does seem to be very true.
1: Yeah, oh, it's uh, like, it's insane to me the number of like, and, you know, they, they're winning at some sort of game. Like, right, I, right. Yeah. it's insane to me the number of them that get like $50 million and can hire a whole crew. And then that's it. That's all they wanted to do. And they told their investors they wanted to cure cancer. And they really just never cared. They just thought it was really neat to like, I don't know, genetically engineer viruses to do weird things. And they told their investors it was cancer, but it was actually just, I don't know, other stuff seems Just pet like project a cool, yeah it's it's a fun project you know um, very
0: interesting very interesting um so I, I got one more line of questioning for you uh you know what's the best learning environment for humans anything any actionable stuff you you found that you think people should apply
1: um depends what you're trying to learn um I think the most important thing is when I think about learning I think of like I always tell my students there's a loop in learning, um, and the loop is you try something, you get it wrong, you realize that you got it wrong, and then you apply it to the like you know next similar thing. Um, and I think that loop is for pretty much any skill is is important. And I think how you change your environment, like you need to structure your environment so you can get things wrong you know when you got things wrong and then you can apply it to the next thing. So like, which is hard to do. So I'll I'll give you an example. Uh, I learned French in high school and my French is meh. Um, I have a friend who's uh, like language learns as a hobby. And at one point he had like seven or eight languages he was actively learning. Oh, wow. Uh, And he was incredible at them. And part of it was he did what you would expect and studied And, um, you know, he would study grammar and study vocab and whatever. Um, But another part of it that he did that I never managed uh, is he failed constantly. He would go up to strangers and talk to them in their language. And, you know, he would do this in languages he didn't speak very well, like Russia. Like he traveled around Eastern Europe (laughs) using Russian. And like, I don't, his Russian at that point was worse than my French. I would not feel confident like, like trying to get around. going around like you know even france never mind like i don't know like i don't know francophone africa i guess would be an analogy like trying just to get around in french with people who cannot speak english uh he's fine with that he's fearless and like you know he starts off looking really dumb because he makes really dumb language learning mistakes but like you know he receives that constant feedback and he iterates and he iterates And by the end of it, I mean, I've seen it happen. He learns languages much better than people who've been studying it for years just because he fails constantly and he's constantly fixing it. Um, So I think that analogy of like, okay, what am I doing? Like, I'm going to get things wrong. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to then apply it to the next person, action, whatever, I think is the ideal learning environment.
0: Gotcha. So so it's some sense in that you need to get fast feedback, and you need to just keep keep iterating on things to really make good progress. Exactly. You need to
1: fail fast and iterate fast. So if you're learning a language, you need to constantly be like looking like an idiot by using the wrong word. Right. If you're learning jujitsu, because that's something I think about a lot. Yeah. You need to be trying a certain move a lot, and you need to figure out all the ways the move can go wrong. So you can finally like come up with, okay, here's how this move works in every situation that I'd want to use it in.
0: Right. Uh, and it almost seems like if you're not, you know, y- you can, if you're not failing enough, you're not pushing far enough. That makes sense. Cause you're, you're not like getting out of, like if you're just doing the jujitsu moves, you know, like you would never fail. But you know, if you, if you're not pushing over the edge a little bit, you're not optimized enough. So that's, but,
1: that's one big issue. Another big issue is just people don't recognize when they fail in certain. Oh, uh, they
0: just don't even know. <laughs>
1: Like you know, and that's sort of like, uh, you know, I think about jujitsu versus other martial arts. Um, in jujitsu, you will know if you do a move wrong at some point, because at some point, you know, you, we constantly do competitions. Yeah. And like at some point, you're gonna get into competition. And you're gonna try that move, and someone's just gonna like smack your face into the mat. It's not
0: gonna like, work. Yeah.
1: And it's like, oh, this move does not work. Um, if you do like, I don't know, like traditional Kung Fu and you never spar, you will never know you did it wrong because no one's ever going to like, you know, no one's ever going to smack you. Right. Like, right. and you can like think your entire life, Oh, I have this really sweet move. And like, you know, you're, I guess one day you probably never figured it out one day you're going to get a street fight and you're going to try it. And then like, it's just going to be some idiots going to clock you, but you know,
0: <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. That's, that's great. Uh I love that analogy um, one more big question uh, you know how can we teach calculus in a more robust way and are there any any uh, lessons we can learn from that and apply elsewhere
1: uh, calculus my greatest weakness um yeah so in terms of calculus um, I think you know I this was something I was thinking about like I have lots of problems with how I was taught in school, which I guess maybe, I don't know if that drives my interest in education or my education or vice versa. Uh, like, you know, I started getting really interested in teaching and then I was like, wait shit, why, is, why was my teaching in school so shit? Um, so I think for calculus and for biology and for lots of things, um, I think the biggest problem we have when we teach kids is that they never love it. And they never learn to love it, um, and the reason they never learn to love it is they never find it. Um, they never find it surprising or interesting. So, like I said, God. I always start my biology essays with "That's weird." Right. Um, you can start a calculus course the same thing, the same way. I mean, you know, the way calculus was originally discovered. A lot of it was like, you know, these uh, European, you know, mathematicians scientists, you know, natural philosophers, as they call themselves obsessed with astronomy and they kept seeing weird things with astronomy and they come up with you know and that's why you had like you know simultaneous physics and calculus at the same time because like a big part of it was just you know they were constantly looking at the night slide that was something they really cared about and like you know they were constantly thinking like how do i explain this this is weird how do i explain this how do i model this how do i predict this um And I think starting with that, and then being like, this is why anyone would give a shit is very important. And I think instead in calculus, or in many other things, you know, we learn it as like, here's like God's given truth that you have to learn. Like it's, you know, the Bible, right? And you don't get to learn, like you learn calculus. And then if you're an engineer in college, four years later, you get to learn why anyone would care about that, which is crazy. You know, there's an old essay that I love, which was like, what if we taught music the same way we taught math, which was no kid ever gets to hear a song or like you know, <laughs> play an instrument until they learn the scales and they learn how to read notes.
0: Right. right? It'd be Every terrible.
1: You would hate music. You would right. never, ever have a musician. Like, you know, but that's, that's how we teach calculus. So...
0: No doubt. Really well put. Well, Trevor, thank you so much for coming on um, and taking the time tonight. Uh, where can people find your work? Where should we send people?
1: Uh, so depends what you want from me, but uh, easiest way is just trevorklee.com, uh, T-R-E-V-O-R-K-L-E-E.com. Uh, I've got links out to my other stuff. If you want to check out my really bare bones uh, biotech company websites, highwayfarm.com. That's P-H-A-R-M.com. Uh, and then otherwise just Google me. I'm like super Googleable. As long as you spell my last name right, you will you will find me.
0: That's great. That's a good gift. Awesome. Well, thanks, Trevor. Really appreciate it.
1: All right. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.